You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. In my estimation, one of the saddest realities that marks a life that is outside of Jesus Christ is purposelessness. That someone can go through the entirety of their life without really knowing why they were created or why they exist. To aimlessly walk about this earth without true purpose. So many think that life is about making much money and accumulating earthly treasures as much as they can. Others find their purpose in personal achievement or in things like vocation uh, or their beauty or pleasure or fame. But then as they get older, as they reach their golden years, they'll realize that if they haven't, if they haven't already, that all these things will fade away. Their strength will one day fade, requiring them to retire from their vocation. Their youthful physical beauty will fade as they age, no matter, no matter how many products they try and use to delay this fading. Their personal achievement will be a distant memory. Their money will not satisfy them in their last days as they come to realize that they can't take it with them into the next life. And so this is why so many end up disillusioned and wanting and without purpose, especially in their old age. This is why so many become bitter as they age, because they don't have true purpose. And one of the saddest, most pitiable examples of this, I believe, is Michael Jordan. Once a charismatic young man who was on top of the world, everyone knew his name, the greatest basketball player on planet Earth. He had all the endorsements, roles in Hollywood movies, and let's not forget, six NBA championships, two three-peats, all the fame and status and money that anyone could ever want. But that was then. And so here we are now, a couple days removed from his days on the court, from his playing career. He's getting older about to turn 60, and he's a shell of himself. Because his purpose was found in something that does not last. And so when he retired, there went his purpose. In his 2009 Hall of Fame speech, he famously said these words. These are religious words, but they're not spoken of of God. They're spoken of of basketball. He said, the game of basketball has been everything to me, my refuge, my place I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. It's been a source of intense pain and a, and a source of most intense feelings of joy and satisfaction. So it's religious terminology there. Three years after saying these words around the, the time of his 50th birthday, he said to a reporter, how can I enjoy the next 20 years of my life without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? It's sad. He found peace and refuge and comfort in something that's fleeting and something that will fade and something that doesn't last. And so now as he enters his old age, he's a man without purpose. Psalm 71, as we learned last week, is written by an older man, a man with gray hairs who finds himself in yet another trial. Indeed, his whole life has been marked by many troubles and calamities. But through each and every trial, we learned last week that he's found the Lord to be a refuge. 
And so in verses 1 to 13, he looked back and he reflected on how the Lord has been faithful to him throughout the course of his life, even all the way back to the time he spent in his mother's womb. The Lord has never let him down. He's always been faithful. He's been a lifelong refuge. And so the psalmist believes if he was faithful back then, then surely he'll be faithful now in this new trial. And so that's verses 1 to 13. Here we are in verses 14 to 24 this morning. And the psalmist transitions from looking backward to now looking forward. And in these verses, we see a man who knows his purpose in life. He's been given a job to do by God. And the reason he pleads to the Lord to preserve his life from, his, from this current trial is because of his resolve to accomplish this mission, to accomplish and to continue to live out his God-given purpose. And so last week's sermon I titled The Lifelong Refuge. This week's sermon is titled The Lifelong Resolve. We're going to see what true purpose in life looks like as we look to the example of the psalmist. And the resolve that the psalmist has not only serves as a powerful example to those in the same life stage as him, but we'll find out this has been his resolve all along throughout his entire life. And so there's application for all of us, no matter our age, whether we're young or old. This has been his lifelong resolve, and so we ought to follow his example. And so let me read. I'll read all of Psalm 71 again, but we'll just be focusing on 14 to 24 today. Let me read the psalm now. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You have made me see many troubles and calamities, will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. 
My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are here this morning because we want to hear from you. And so as your word is opened, and as it is proclaimed, we pray that you would add your blessing to it, that your spirit would empower the preached word. Lord, your word is the bread of life. Help us to feast on it this morning. And Lord, we pray um, that you would help us uh, to uh, know what our purpose ought to be in this life, what our resolve ought to be as Christians. And Lord, we pray for the lost to even be saved in our midst by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned last week, Psalm 71 is a psalm of lament. But there are some statements of confidence and praise within the psalm. And so some of those statements of confidence appear mostly in the second half of this psalm. There's a shift in tone and in focus in this second half. The psalmist shifts from lamenting his situation that these opponents have risen up against him and are falsely accusing him and seeking to hurt him. He shifts from lamenting that to now proclaiming his confidence in God and even praising him continually throughout the psalm. And as we look at the second half together and we consider the example of the psalmist, we're going to see three lifelong resolutions for the Christian worshiper. Three commitments that we ought to make in our lives if we're to live our life with purpose for the glory of God. And as we look at them, we're going to kind of jump around the psalm a little bit. We're not going to go sequentially through it like we did last week, but by the end of it, we'll have covered all the verses. Three lifelong resolutions for the Christian worshiper. Here's the first one. Resolved to hope continually in the faithfulness of God. To hope continually in the faithfulness of God. And so for this first point, we're going to be looking at some of those statements of confidence that show up throughout this passage. We'll start with verse 14. But I will hope continually. I will hope continually. What a start to this section. Just a few words. Opponents have risen up against him. False accusations have been made. They're seeking his downfall. He finds himself in yet another precarious situation. And how does he respond? But I will hope continually. And I just want to pause here. It's interesting. When I, when I sat down to begin preparing this sermon, I had just been informed of some troubling news about the health of someone in my family. And so I was worrying and I was concerned and I was upset. And so I sit down and I, I open my Bible and the first phrase that I read as I'm processing what I was just told is this, but I will hope continually. And so right away, before digging into the text, before meditating on it, before opening a commentary, it's already ministering to my soul and I have a peace come over me as I'm reminded by the Lord, hope in me, be hopeful. Be hopeful. One of the things that sets Christians apart from the rest of mankind is that no matter how difficult things get, no matter how much the enemy advances, no matter how deep the valley goes, no matter how bad the news is, 
We always have reason to hope. Always. Even on the darkest of days. And, and that's just objectively true if you know God and trust in his son. You always have reason to hope. And some of you might be in a dark trial right now and you hear those words and your flesh wants to buck against that and say, no, I don't have reason to hope right now. Who are you to tell me that? But it's true. There's always reason to hope. And so all of us, if we know Christ Jesus as Lord, we should be able to echo these words in verse 14. The news is bad, yes, but. The opposition is fierce, but. The loss is hard, but I will hope continually. And the psalmist first brings up this idea of hope in verse 5. He says, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. God has been his hope from his youth. He's never failed him. He's always been able to find hope in God throughout each and every trial and calamity and trouble in his life. The seasons have changed over the course of his life. The circumstances of his life have changed. The stages have changed. But here amidst all the change, there has remained one constant through it all. God himself. He's the one guaranteed constant in our lives, right? Trials come and go, people come and go, friendships come and go. Some are here today and they're not here tomorrow. Our strength comes and goes with age, jobs come and go. But the one guaranteed constant that always remains the same, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is God himself. One who is always there. And so this is why the psalmist can hope continually. We learned in verse 3 last week that he can continually come to God to take refuge in him. And then in verse 5, we learn that God is his hope. And so it follows, if he can continually come to God because he's always there and God is his hope, then guess what? He can continually hope in God. Even despite these difficult, uncertain circumstances. And so the psalmist, after reflecting on God's past faithfulness, he now has a renewed confidence in the faithfulness of God. And he expresses that throughout the second half of the psalm. This is the grounds for his hope. So let's jump down. I said we'd jump, we'd jump around a little bit. Let's jump down to verse 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. That first statement there is quite a statement about the sovereignty of God over the trials of life. The psalmist here actually acknowledges, look in the text, that it's, it's God who causes him to see the troubles and calamities that he's seen. God's the one that sovereignly allowed and even ordained the trials that have come into his life. And so let's just pause here for a moment because this is important. Some might ask, how on earth is that to inspire any confidence? Right? He finds himself in the depths of a dark trial, and here we find that God is somehow responsible for sovereignly bringing him to this dark point in the first place. How should that inspire any confidence? Why would God do that? How does that cultivate any hope? How can we hope in God when we believe he's the one that allows us to walk through this valley. 
Well, let's consider the opposite scenario for a second as we seek to discern the answer to this difficult question. Let's say for a moment God were not completely sovereign over the trials of your life. Okay, let's say he's not in full control of them. They're outside of his control. And so just as the trial caught you off guard, the trial also caught God off guard. In this fictional scenario, what reason would you have then to hope in God? If he doesn't have power over the storm in the first place, then who's to say he has power to tell the winds to stop and the waves to be still? If God is not in control of the trials, then we can't be certain that he can bring the needed relief from them. That's what I'm trying to say. But of course, the psalmist knows that he's in control. And since he's in control, that means he can bring relief. He can tell the storm to stop, to be still. Part of the reason the psalmist has hope is because his trust is in the one who's sovereign over all, even the trials and the darkest of days. And because of that, God's the one who can answer the psalmist's prayers, and he's the one, the only one, that can in one way or another deliver the psalmist. That is only true if God is sovereign. That is only true if God is all-powerful. Simply stated, if he's not fully sovereign, then there no longer remains reason for hope. He cannot always be faithful to his people and to his promises if there are things that are outside of his control. If there are things outside of his control, how could he guarantee anything? And so some will ask in response to that, well, if he's sovereign, why does he allow the trial to come into my life in the first place? He could have prevented it. And so why did he allow me to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Why? And that's a good question. Everyone wrestles with that question at some time in their life. And the truth is, we don't always know the answer to that question, do we? We're not always told why. Sometimes he tells us why, but sometimes he withholds the answer from us like he did with Job. But we do know that his purposes are always good. We do know that he can take the trial and use it for good. We're told this in Genesis 50. We're told this in Romans 8. We know that he can bring the greatest good out of the greatest evil and that his purposes are always good. We need not look any further than the cross of Jesus Christ, the most heinous evil ever concocted. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, murdered, crucified on a cross, the worst evil, and yet through that very evil, God purchases his people and ransoms us. He brings the greatest good out of the greatest evil. His ways are above our ways. He is sovereign and he is good. And so even when we're not told the answer to that why question, we can still hope because we know those things to be true. And so the psalmist, after acknowledging that God is sovereign over the trials of life, he can then declare in verse 20, with certainty, you will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. Okay, this, this terminology conjures up pictures of resurrection in our minds. It sounds as though he's praying that he would be resurrected, brought up from the earth. But this is likely not what he's actually praying for. This is 
more likely simply a poetic way of requesting deliverance from his current trial. And so the use of the word depths in the Psalms usually just refers to deep trials. The psalmist says in Psalm 130 verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Well, he's not literally in the depths of the earth crying out to the Lord for deliverance. Rather, he's crying out to the depths from the depths of his trial. And so the confident prayer and hope of the psalmist here in verse 20 is not for literal resurrection from the grave, though he may have that hope in his life. But rather, the, Lord is, the confidence is in the Lord delivering him one way or another. Having said that, though, it's certain that the New Testament authors pick up on this kind of imagery when they refer to the resurrection of the dead. And as Christians, our ultimate hope of deliverance is in the future resurrection, that one day we literally will be revived again from the depths of the earth. And so even as the psalmist is hopeful and certain that God will deliver him from the depths, you too, if you're in Christ, you can have this same confidence. Because even if he doesn't deliver you in this life, from whatever trial you may endure, we know that he will in the next. We know that there is coming a day when Christ will return. And let me encourage you, that day is closer today than it was yesterday. And when he returns, the dead in Christ will rise to be with him forevermore. We will be given a glorified, perfect body. And we will dwell with him in perfect joy and peace for the rest of eternity. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more trials. Just perfect joy and peace. This is our resurrection hope. And this is why as Christians we always have hope. This is why as Christians we can always say those words in verse 14. But I will hope continually. How different would we live our lives? How different would we see our own circumstances if we caught just a little glimpse of what that will be like? Hope would always abound, I believe. It would never end. You wouldn't need any convincing. And so even if we cannot be certain of earthly deliverance, we are certain of deliverance on that day. And so we can echo the words of the psalmist in verse 20, that he will revive us again, if not in this life, then in the next. So don't lose hope. Cling to that truth. The psalmist continues this declaration of confidence in verse 21. This is interesting. He says, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. So he believes that when the Lord brings relief, his greatness will actually be increased. A psalmist's greatness. And he will be comforted again. And the word for greatness here can also be translated honor. In other words, he believes that, his, that going through this trial and the subsequent deliverance from it will somehow not only be for his good, but will actually increase him in honor. How is this possible? Well, again, it's because God is sovereign. And so the psalmist, for whatever reason, is confident that God will do this. Perhaps it's been revealed to him. And sometimes this is how the Lord works. Maybe you've seen this in your own life. God brings you through a trial, and you're not exactly sure why in the midst of it, but then somehow on the other side, you're actually in a much better situation than you were before the trial started. Certainly that should always be true of us spiritually because he uses it to sanctify us. This is how the Lord works. And certainly this will be true of the resurrection, both spiritually and physically. We will physically die, our bodies will decay in the grave, 
But then ultimately we will be delivered even from that situation and our resurrected state will be far greater, far better than our state was before we entered the grave. Matthew Henry said this, he said, Sometimes God makes his people's troubles contribute to the increase of their greatness. And their sun shines the brighter for having been under the cloud. When our Lord Jesus was quickened again and brought back from the depths of the earth, his greatness was increased and he entered into the joy set before him. Let's quickly look at a final statement of confidence in verse 24. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. That last phrase there, he's so confident of it happening that he speaks about it as though it already has in the past tense. And you can contrast verse 24 with verse 1 to kind of summarize the journey of this psalm. Because at the outset of the psalm, what is the psalmist concerned about? He doesn't want to be put to shame. Lord, please don't put me to shame. But then by the end of the psalm, he knows that ultimately it won't be him that's put to shame, but his enemies. Why? Well, he knows, as we talked about last week, that his imprecatory psalm in verse 13 will be fulfilled. His imprecatory prayer. We learn that this is tied to the promises of God in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And so in verse 13, he prayed, May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. And because God is faithful to his word and he knows what God has promised to lawbreakers and to those who do not follow him and rebel against him, he knows that God will judge them for their sin. And he'll bring perfect just, justice to bear upon the situation. That these opponents who have falsely accused him and sought his hurt They'll be judged for it. God will be faithful to his word. And so the psalmist is confident of this. He was concerned that he'd be put to shame. He prays that his enemies would actually be the ones put to shame. And then in verse 24, he speaks as though it's already happened. Because he's so confident in the faithfulness of God. This is why the psalmist is able to hope continually in the Lord. Because God is sovereign and God is faithful. And those two truths change everything. His sovereignty means that he's able to fulfill every last one of his promises towards his people. And his faithfulness means that he will. And so we too, we should be able to echo those words in verse 14. But I will hope continually, no matter what we may be going through, no matter what comes our way, I will hope continually. Resolved to hope continually in the faithfulness of God. Number two, our second lifelong resolution, to sing my way through the trials of life. To sing my way through the trials of life. Let's look at verse 14 again. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. Here in the second half of this verse, we see yet another statement of praise to the Lord. We saw this a couple times in the first half of the psalm. That the singing doesn't stop when the going gets tough. That the psalmist continues to sing to the Lord even on his darkest day. And here in verse 14, we see it's not just that the singing doesn't stop during the trial. It actually increases. Look at what it says. He sings to the Lord more and more, all the more in his current situation. 
The worship of God becomes that much more urgent in the midst of his desperation. It becomes that much more of a priority. His strength may be spent, but make no mistake, he can still sing. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre. So again here, he notes that he sings the Lord's praises. The praise of the Lord is really the most recurring theme in this song, in this psalm. Verse 6, my praise is continually of you. Verse 8, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Verse 14, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. Verse 22, I'll praise you, I will sing praises. Verse 23, I sing praises. This should tell us something, if this is the most recurring thing that the psalmist does in the psalm. This tells us that worship is a crucial part of our endurance of trials. And so in a sense, the the more desperate our situation becomes then, the more we ought to come to the Lord in worship, that our souls may be comforted, that our hearts may be reminded of important truths about God, that that we may fix our eyes on Jesus and that which is of most importance in our times of confusion and uncertainty where it's so easy to wander. This is one of the reasons that corporate worship is so important to the life of the church. Can a church of our size, every Sunday, there are always some very difficult situations represented in the congregation. I read through the Connect folder every week, and there's difficult situations in the church right now, I'll tell you that. And so there are always people that come into the church on Sunday morning spiritually limping after a difficult week marked by pain and sorrow and trial. And one of the things they need to persevere during that time is to hear the church sing. They need the encouragement and the uplifting that comes from singing the Lord's praises. For me, it seems that the the harder the week is, the more I long for Sunday. The more intense the spiritual opposition is in my life, the more I look forward to Sunday, to gathering. I, I crave the encouragement that comes when we sing together. This is why we're commanded in Ephesians and Colossians to speak to one another, to admonish one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Worship is not just vertical, okay? It's primarily vertical. We're only worshiping vertical, but God uses that to encourage one another horizontally. We worship the Lord, and yet we speak the worship to one another. Maybe you can think back to a trial or a difficult time in your life, and you remember a psalm or a hymn or a worship song that the Lord used to help you endure and to get you through that time. Yeah, there's many examples that come to my mind. I can think back to a few years ago when my Oma died. And there was a worship song that just even in driving to her funeral struck me in a particular way and it encouraged my soul and helped me in that time of mourning. I can think back to the first lockdown and all the challenges in that season of ministry. And through it all as a family, we sung the song, It Is Well over and over again at family worship and when we tuck the kids into bed, sometimes with tears in my eyes, and yet the Lord used that to help me endure. 
and to encourage me in that storm. I can think back to when our youngest uh, son, Luke, was born in October 2020. Aaron had had a C-section, which always comes with some challenges. And then Luke had to be admitted into the NICU with some health concerns. They weren't super serious, but they were serious enough that he had to go to the NICU. And of course, this was during the season of COVID. And so we couldn't both be with him at the same time in the NICU. It added some stress. And in this time of uncertainty and anxiousness and some difficulty, someone sends me this worship song about the faithfulness of God in the storms of life. And I, I listened to it and considered the lyrics in, my, in the hospital room. Aaron was with Luke, and I just wept. And this, this particular song became an anthem for me in 2021. I remember some of the Sundays driving here, not knowing what would happen, blasting this worship song and singing at the top of my lungs. And the Lord used it to help me endure that season because it was a constant reminder to me of the faithfulness of God. And I needed that reminder. This is how worship works. This is the effect that singing can have on our lives. And so this is why the psalmist sings himself through his trials. Sometimes that's all we can do, is it not? This is why the singing in our lives must not stop when the trials come. If anything, the singing should increase. The worship songs on our Spotify playlist should be played all the more. The volume should be turned up. And we should praise the Lord more and more as the psalmist resolves to do here. I already referenced it, but look at verse 23. There's something important found within this verse. He says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. Note here that it's not just his lips that sing praises, but his soul. If singing God's praises just proceeds from our mouths, not from our hearts, not from our souls, then guess what? It's just lip service. Anyone can sing lyrics off a screen. But it's not true worship unless it proceeds from the soul. And so what kind of soul can sing the Lord's praise, we must ask? Well, the psalmist tells us there are a soul that's been redeemed. A redeemed soul. A soul that's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. A soul that's been ransomed from slavery to sin. A soul that's been bought with a price. A redeemed soul that truly understands the eternal redemption that is theirs in Jesus Christ. Guess what? That soul cannot help but sing the Lord's praises. And so let me pause and ask you this morning. Has your soul been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Have you had your sins washed away? Have you been set free from the bondage and the slavery of your sin and of your guilt? If the answer is no, then I invite you to come to Jesus this morning and receive redemption. <clears throat> to redeem something simply means to buy it back, to purchase it back. Apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are in slavery to your sin. Sin is your master. It rules over you. And your greatest need then is for redemption. For someone to buy you back from the slavery of sin. And that someone's name, of course, is Jesus Christ. 
He has paid for the sins of his people with the blood that he shed for them on the cross. The Bible says he gave his life as a ransom for many. And he has risen from the dead, securing our eternal redemption. And if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you will be redeemed by his blood. Your sins will be washed as white as snow and you will be set free. The Bible says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, never to go back to the yoke of slavery. When you receive that gift of redemption, when you understand all that's been done for you in the gospel, you won't be able to help but sing. So when people come here on Sunday and they don't sing, it's a red flag. I wondered, have they been redeemed? Do they truly know Jesus? How could they not sing to him? Because a redeemed soul is a soul that praises the Lord. How could we not but sing all the more when we consider all that Christ has done for us? This is what the psalmist resolves to do in the midst of the trial. Resolve to sing my way through the trials of life. Finally, number three, the third resolution. Resolved to proclaim the glory of God to the next generation. Proclaim the glory of God to the next generation. Let me read verses 15 to 19, and then I'll jump to verse 24 and notice, see if you can spot the recurring theme in these verses. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come, I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. I will remind them of your righteousness. I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. I proclaim your might. My tongue will talk of your righteous help. This is what the psalmist lives for. This is where he finds his purpose. In proclaiming and reminding and teaching God's truth to others. And he's resolved to do this, right? These are statements of resolution. He says, I will tell, I will remind, I will talk. Those are promises. Those are commitment statements. Those are statements of resolve. We see that his resolve is both constant and lifelong. In verse 15, he says, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. All day long, I will not stop, I will not cease from declaring your glory to all who would hear it. And it's not just constant, it's lifelong. Verse 16, O God, from my youth you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So he's been doing this from his youth. This is a constant, lifelong resolve to proclaim the glory of God. To share the gospel, to proclaim of his might and his power and his righteousness and his mighty deeds. Verse 18 in particular really reveals the primary reason the psalmist cries out to the Lord for deliverance from from this trial in his old age, no less. Verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power 
to all those to come. So even in his old age, when his strength is spent and his hairs are gray, his all-consuming desire is, first of all, for God to not forsake him. He still wants to be with God. He wants God's presence in his life. And then he wants the Lord to use him to disciple and to pass on his knowledge of God, perhaps all that God has taught him through the trials of life. He wants to pass that on to the next generation. Notice he doesn't pray for God to preserve his life so that he can live out the rest of his retirement on the beaches of Florida collecting seashells, as Pastor John Piper would say. He doesn't pray for the Lord to preserve his life so that he can sit back and enjoy all the riches and the luxuries that he's amassed. He doesn't pray for God to preserve his life so that he can go get a golf membership and golf out the rest of his days on the golf course. He doesn't pray for God to preserve his life so that he can see the world and travel. No. He prays for God to preserve his life so that he could proclaim the glory of God to the next generation. How many seniors think this way? This is what gives our lives true purpose. Notice that age does not make a difference as to the binding effect of the Great Commission on your life. Okay? In other words, there's no retiring from the Great Commission. You're not just bound to the mission when you're young and when you have lots of energy. You're bound to it even in your old age as well. You cannot ever retire from making disciples because this is your lifelong purpose once you come to Christ. Titus 2, of course, teaches us that older men and older women, what's their job in the church? To come alongside of younger men and younger women. Live as examples to them. Disciple them. Help them. Teach them. And so to the older folks in the room, I have to ask, are you, are you seeking to continue to make disciples into your old age? Okay, maybe it looks differently than it did when you were younger and you had more zeal, but it shouldn't stop altogether. Are you passing on what you've learned about God to the next generation? How are you doing that? How are you seeking to pass on God's truth to the next generation? Okay, you can retire from your vocation, but you cannot retire from this calling that God has placed on your life if you're in Christ. It's not just a young man's job to proclaim his glory to the next generation. Are you seeking to do this in your family, with your children, with your grandchildren, perhaps even with your great-grandchildren if you're blessed with them? Fathers, are you seeking to have times of family worship where you can teach the coming generation your own children? about the glory of God? Do you prioritize Sunday worship attendance with your family over everything else so that they can come and they can have the wonders of God proclaimed to them? Are you seeking to do this in the church context? There are many opportunities for this to happen. This happens in small group. This is why small groups are intergenerational so that older men can help younger men and older women can help younger women and Sometimes that's in age, sometimes that's in maturity in Christ. Someone is older in Christ, and so they're able to come alongside someone who's newer in Christ, even if the ages are not aligned in that way. This happens, of course, in children's and youth ministries. Sign up to serve in those so that you can proclaim God's truth to the next generation. This happens at street evangelism, joining 
the street outreach team proclaiming the glory of God to anyone who would hear it, to the coming generation on the streets. This even happens on Sunday mornings when older folks serve in various ministries and seek to exemplify to younger folks what that looks like and that they're still committed to this task even into their old age. But while the focus may be toward the older generation in this psalm, we know, of course, that this resolve isn't only for them. It's for all of us. Because the moment God called you to be a disciple, God also called you to be a disciple maker. The call to Christ is simultaneously a call to make disciples. And at its, at its most basic form, to make disciples means to proclaim the glory of God to others. And so while we still have breath in our lungs, this remains our purpose in life, to make disciples to the glory of God. This is why the psalmist wants deliverance from his trials, because he knows there's still work to be done. He still has some capacity, and so he wants to use that for the glory of God and for this great mission. Paul says something similar in Philippians 1. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Philippians 1, verses 21 to 26. Of course, Paul finds himself in prison, and he, he, his execution may be imminent. And so he's kind of thinking out loud, does, does he want to be executed so that he can go and be with Christ and leave this life of trial? Or does he want to stay on earth? This is what he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I am to live in the flesh. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul wants his life to be spared so that he can teach and disciple the Philippians and continue to point them to Christ. Is this too your all-consuming passion? Is this your purpose? Is this what you live for? Listen to this quote from Gerald Wilson in his commentary on Psalm 71. He says, This is a significant shift from preserve my life to allow me to leave a legacy of hope and faithfulness. While the psalmist cannot stave off death forever, he desires to live long enough to transmit his faithful message to those who come after. The repeated request for restoration of life to be brought up from the depths of the earth and to receive increased honor are not simply so that the psalmist may receive pleasure and benefit, but so that his message of praise will be heard and received with respect. The golden opportunity of our golden years, according to the psalmist, is to transmit to your children, whether real or spiritual, and your children's children, God's power and God's might. End quote. This was the psalmist's resolve. And this was Paul, Paul's resolve too. And so that means this must be our lifelong resolve also. And so do you want to live a life that matters? Do you want to live a life of purpose, regardless of your age, even when there's gray hairs on your head? And then resolve to do these three things for the glory of God for the entirety of your life, both young and old. Resolve to continually hope in the faithfulness of God. He's sovereign and he's faithful. And he will revive us again, we know that. Resolve to sing your way through the trials of life. 
In fact, when the trials come, sing to the Lord all the more. And finally, resolve to proclaim the glory of God to the next generation. Seek to leave a legacy of faith to those who come after you. A life lived in pursuit of these three things is a life that counts. It's a life lived with true purpose. And so may it be so in our lives. May it be so.